Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 485, air date December 10th, 2019. Um, so without further ado, let me introduce Dr. Shiva Ayodore, um, MIT, PhD, the inventor of email and world-renowned scientist who is recognized globally for his contributions to the field of personalized and precision medicine. Let's have a warm welcome for Dr. Shiva Ayodore. Since we started late, I'm going to try to do this quickly. But anyway, thanks for everyone coming. I want to also thank Michelle. And uh, I think we have about, how many, about a couple hundred people on Facebook Live, right? So sorry for the delay. Uh, there's always something that happens. But we'll try to speed this up. Uh, what I wanted to do was, the purpose of this conference is really to give a very different perspective on this entire discourse. And as Michelle said, this is really to move it beyond this vax, anti-vax stuff. And I think everyone who's taken time to come out here really has a commitment, I believe, to truth, freedom, and health. And um, I, I thought what we would do is first really, uh, the key takeaways that I hope to uh, convey to you is what is health? You know, what is health? We all talk about health. Uh, what is a definition of health? And I hope uh, everyone will walk away with a, a clear definition of what health is. And then how do we get to health? And then how does the discourse on vaccines or lack of discourse actually support um, how we can get to health? So first of all, uh, how many people are from out of town here? Andre, um, somebody wanted. Yeah. Yeah, so we have, a, we have a lot of people from out of town. Okay, so Boston, you know, when I came here, Boston's known as the center of science and innovation. Everyone's familiar with that, right? And my journey here actually has been a long journey. And I, 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 uh, was born in uh, Bombay, India. Um, anyone been to India? You have these very wild scenes. India is a country within country within countries. In one scene like this, you, you can see probably about 20 centuries in it. Um, but I was also bro uh, brought up in a small village in India. And that village is a very different construct because uh, you, know, you have no running water, uh, no electricity. It's very different than the cities. Uh, but in that village, my grandparents were poor subsistence farmers. My grandmother is actually uh, also a traditional healer. So not only did she work for 16 hours a day, but on weekends she was the healer. And typically, um, women in most villages were the healer. You know, you didn't have medical doctors in there, so women typically learned a lot of these techniques of traditional medicine. So my grandmother could observe your face, uh, predict what was going on inside your body, and, and this may seem like woo-woo, to a lot of the conventionally trained Western people, but there's a whole science to this. We're not, we don't have time to discuss this, but in the Indian system of medicine, it's called Ayurveda or Siddha, and they don't use the words molecules or proteins or DNA, but they have their own language, which describes how the body is a system. Um, so I was exposed to medicine, but India also had a caste system. Anyone familiar with that? The caste system of India was very hierarchical. There were the so-called academics or the priesthood up on top, and then the kings and the warriors, and we were considered untouchables in India. So you won't find a lot of Indians like me here. So I learned a lot about uh, how systems of power also worked. Uh, I was forced to do that as a young kid. My parents came here in 1970. Uh, it was quite interesting that my parents were able to get an education at a time when uh, someone like my mom over there should never have been educated. Um, and uh, so it's, it's sort of a one in a trillion chance. But I had a deep interest 
in, in, in understanding systems, but also uh, a desire to excel. This is an interesting article. When I was 14, this article came out in a little newspaper saying that a professor at NYU was going to offer uh, 14, uh, 40 students the chance to go to NYU to study computer science. And I was one of those um, guys who was overachiever. And I got selected, and I ended up going to NYU as a 14-year-old kid and um, studying computer science. And when I graduated, because of my deep interest in medicine, I started working while in high school at Rutgers Medical School. So I've been doing you know, medical research for a long time, believe it or not, as a professional researcher. I, was, I got a full-time job as a research fellow. Um, we've talked, people have brought up SIDS, right? Sudden Infant Death Syndrome. Um, Rutgers had some of the best data, this is in 78, on longitudinal data of, of baby sleep uh, when babies were dying of apneas. So we did some of the earliest work applying computers to look at sleep patterns of babies and trying to predict when uh, you know, an apnea would onset. So I learned how to mix computing and biology as a kid, but I also learned how to build large-scale systems. Some of you may know of this. When I say systems in those days, you know, secretaries were really the powerhouse of communication. They used to build these things called a memo, right? To, from, subject, you notice inbox, outbox, folders. And in those days, computers, you could send simple messages, very short text messages. That's not what I'm talking about, but I was also asked to convert this entire system of communications Anyone seen these pneumatic tubes into the electronic form? This is sort of the ethernet before the pneumatic tubes were how you transported things. And I converted that system to an electronic form long before the military even thought it was possible. The military industrial complex thought women could not do this. This is a quote from a RAND report in December 1977, basically saying uh, that it was impossible to build a system like this because the users could not go from the typewriter to the keyboard. So it's a very sexist comment um, at underlying. But I call this system email. Uh, the only reason I called it email was the operating system allowed five characters. Um, and and uh, email was created by the collaboration of, uh, of great teachers, uh, a great mentor, and a loving family. It did not come from the military industrial academic complex. That's a big lie. So um, that's my mentor. Anyway, when I came to MIT, I was deeply interested, by the way, this was done before I came to MIT, all right, in Newark, New Jersey by a 14-year-old kid. And, um, and on the front page of MIT, they listed three students who had done something of note, and I was one of them. And the president of MIT and, and at that time said, Shiva, you should um, copyright because the Supreme Court did not understand what software was until 1994. And so I did it, and on August 30th, 1982, a 14-year-old kid our 17-year-old American kid was uh, recognized officially as the inventor of email. Those are the facts. So when you see online people attacking my integrity, uh, you can hit them with this. The fact is, email was not done at MIT. It wasn't done at Silicon Valley, and it wasn't done by some nerds at Raytheon. Okay? Anyway, uh, so that was one journey I went through, you know, as an inventor. But when I came to Boston, this is a scene of Longwood, okay? Uh, anyone? I know Sylvia's from there. But you can see, this is also... Boston is known as a mecca of medicine, right? This is another scene. I mean, you have the massive concentration of medical health care. So I was obviously, um, because of my other interests in health, uh, was very motivated in this. But when I came to MIT, I was very concerned because um, the system of Western medicine looked at the body as parts, right? So if you go to a doctor with a headache, you could get 10 different people looking at you. 
right? You could go to a, a psychiatrist, an endocrinologist, a, a neurologist. You get sent everywhere, and it really helps the insurance model because each one of those um, you, you check off. And, um, and this is a result of that system, right? The uh, health care is going to become 20% of GDP, right? Uh, six, seven times more than even, than even the defense spending. And what's even more interesting is if you look at the pharmaceutical world, year-over-year year spending, as you notice here, in R&D costs, you would think the more you spend in R&D, what should you get, better products? They're actually finding they're getting less and less new drug approvals. And this is, so this is around 2006. Uh, and so, and by the way, this graph has not changed. So the pharmaceutical industry itself, you know, in Kendall Square, et cetera, is recognizing that their system of pharmaceutical development is also not working. It's very, very um, time-consuming, um, and uh, it, it doesn't create efficacious drugs. This is a system of how we build pharmaceutical drugs. By the way, pharmaceutical drugs have very uh, stringent standards. Interesting enough, vaccines aren't listed in those standards. Okay? We'll talk about this. But typically, this is how the process works. Uh, someone here may discover a new compound. Then you raise some money, then you go do a bunch of in vitro research, which means in a test tube if you're trying to discover something for cancer. Then you go do research in vivo in an animal. And if you make it through that, during this process, you, fought, you go to the FDA and you say, look, I got really good results. I'm not killing animals. Um, I would like to start testing on humans. That's called an FDA IND allowance. You file for that FDA allowance, and then if you get it allowed, then you can go test on humans, phase one, phase two, phase three. How many people know about this? Anyone? Okay, about 20%. This, and at the end of it, you get a thing called a, a drug that's gone through this testing. Phase one means small groups of humans. Phase three means lots of humans. Now, this is only for a single drug. What is a drug? A drug is a synthetic compound, okay? It's not an herb, right? Uh, it's not a yoga movement, okay? It's not, uh, uh, it's a single synthetic compound. The problem with this is if you look, $5 billion, lots of money go to it, and it takes about 13 years. At the end of this process, you only have seven years to monetize it because the patent process is 20 years. So if it takes you 13 years to find a drug, you only have seven years, which means what? You have to crank up the cost to recoup your investment. Moreover, as we'll talk about, it's not personalized. And 20% of the stuff making it to phase one make it out. So basically, it's a very, very um, uh, uh, inefficient system. This system is no different than, as we would say in engineering, how we used to build airplanes in the old days. You came up with a design, you threw the pilot in. If he crashed, you said, gee whiz, he crashed. And then if he survived, then you explain why that wing structure worked, okay? It's not really based on mechanistic understanding of disease. Um, and if you further peel away into this, you'll find out that the real problem is academic research. So if the elephant represents, let's say, the immune system, which we're going to talk about, or it represents cancer or Alzheimer's, um, this is a story of the blind man. You know, Buddha tells a story about the king who brings in the six blind men, and he shows them the elephant, and everyone touches different parts, and each person has their own view of what that elephant is. That's called reductionism. That's a term that you'll hear. Reductionism is when you don't see the whole, you see the part. Okay, so if you look at the entire immune system, you try to reduce its efficacy to something called an antibody or a white blood cell. This goes back to 1915. Or if you look at the environment, you try to reduce it to one variable called CO2. Or if you look at genetically engineered foods, you try to reduce it to something, okay, a single variable. 
The single variable model is a way to manipulate people or you get a little glimpse of truth. And in fact, in these blind men, if they actually ever got together, I don't know if you know the story, one guy thinks it's a snake, the other guy thinks he's touching a spear, you'd end up with something like this, okay? <laughs> Has nothing to do with the whole, all right? Now, the interesting thing in academic research, if this is cancer, you get a Nobel Prize just for understanding one part. There is not an incentive for collaboration because of the way the tenure process is set up and we can have a longer discussion about this. However, the good news is all of this really sort of started changing in an ironic way when the Genome Project ended in 2003. What you're seeing in this graph is, in 1993, we, when we started the Genome Project, we thought what made a human being different than a worm was a number of genes. So biologists who are very siloed, or um, they thought that complexity is a function of the number of parts. So if you look at this graph, we knew a worm in, in 1993 had about 20,000 genes. So we assume, wow, a human being must have a, a lot more than that, right? So we assumed it was at least five times, 100,000. You guys see what happens here? As the time goes by, they're not finding that many genes. And what happens in 2003, you only find around 20,000 genes. So I'll repeat, a human being and a worm have the same number of genes, okay? But does that mean complexity is a function of the number of parts? No, because it's how things are interconnected, okay? It's not the number of things, it's how things are interconnected, all right? So interconnection it was, makes a difference. So this led to a field called systems biology. On one of my companies, I have a board member, a scientific board member, who had published this in Nature in around 2003, saying, look, if you're gonna understand the whole body, so now Western medicine wants to understand the whole, is you can't, it's not just the genes, you gotta understand genes create proteins, cells, you have to, it's not a simple problem of the whole, but you have to actually understand um, the interconnections among these things, its cells, its tissues, etc. So this led to a very exciting field called systems biology. At this time I was running another company to analyze email in a different enterprise, um, and I came back to MIT, my advisor, Forbes Dewey, said, Shiva, you gotta come back, finish up your PhD. There's a really cool field called systems biology, and the National Science Foundation had put forward this big challenge, was could you mathematically model the whole cell? Everything all right, Andres? Yeah, we're doing great. Okay, and so, so if you think about the human cell as a big chemical reaction of interconnected chemical reactions, so think about it this way, okay? It's, it's reactions within reactions, systems within systems. Now think about if you could model this, which means you could start doing experiments on the computer long before you did test tube, long before you went and killed a bunch of animals, because you could start understanding mechanisms. Is that clear? So this was sort of this grand vision of systems biology. And by the way, this is what's called a molecular pathway. You're gonna learn a lot today, okay? Um, if you read a paper in a scientific literature on, let's say, um, you know, Alzheimer's, there's, you know, or osteoarthritis, is gonna talk about this later, there's 20,000 papers if you go to PubMed. If you type in, I think, vaccines, what do we find? 1.7 million papers, okay? And if you go read a paper, somewhere in that paper, someone did an experiment, and from that experiment, they found, oh, chemical A reacts with chemical B to get chemical C, right? And this is called a molecular pathway. So, Today, the way we study biology is these little diagrams. If you take a biochemistry course, they'll draw a diagram, okay? These pathways were starting to become mathematical models, all right, albeit small. And the issue was, 
could you interconnect these models together? And that's why I went back to MIT in 2003 to 7. I created a new technology called Cytosol. What Cytosol allowed us to do was to look at very complex molecular mechanisms, knowing that people were in their silos, let them do their silo stuff, but we would convert them to models and we would create large scale models of disease. And this was a revolutionary breakthrough because people didn't think this was possible. Even at MIT, the head of the uh, department was doing maybe 50 different species and he was leaving the field. We took a very different approach, an engineering approach. We didn't see it as a biologist approach. We said, imagine everyone in this room was individual biologists doing your thing and you're publishing. We would let you keep doing your thing, treat you almost as knowledge engineers, extract out the papers, extract, extract out the mechanisms, and build a whole new technology to do this kind of modeling. And that was Cytosol. Well, we'd realized that what we'd actually done was define a whole new way to do medical research. So instead of, notice I added the word S here, instead of just a compound, we could add multiple compounds so you could test herbs. You could test combinations of herbs, which Western medical pharmaceutical system cannot do. And what we would do is mine the existing research, which means don't recreate the wheel, and model these very complex systems long before we even did in vitro testing. And by the way, this is how we build airplanes, right? Everyone's comfortable with this, right? You would, you would never say, oh, you didn't test that on a human, you know, and kill pilots. You would say, did you do the modeling on the computer? Then you do wind tunnel, then you go, and this is a process how modern civilization works. Let me give you an example. How's everyone doing, all right? Okay. Um, so what I wanted to show you here is that if you, so when we presented this, this was a, a, a big deal because people didn't think this kind of stuff was possible. So between 2012, we published a lot of papers and to um, uh, people thinking that I'm like, you know, an anti-vaxxer or pro-vaxxer. You know, I work with big pharma companies. I've published in the major journals in the world. So it's not I'm coming out of some left field here. So I want to share some of that with you. And you also will get educated what's going on in biology right now. Biology is moving, or systems biology is bringing us very powerful tools where we're going to be able to solve diseases in a very different way if we want to. And we're going to be able to personalize it. So by the way, um, anyone heard of Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, all these diseases, right? There's a lot of research showing, by the way, this is, if you think about this as a piece of the brain, the astrocyte, this is the endothelia, this is called the parasites, okay? When blood flows through your brain, you have the blood-brain barrier, toxins are removed and, and things are nourished, and the blood-brain barrier decides what goes into the brain and what stays here. Anyway, um, there's been a growing recognition that most of these neurovascular diseases are the destruction of the parasites, the structure, which means your blood-brain barrier gets compromised, stuff comes in that shouldn't, and stuff that's supposed to be removed doesn't get removed. So what we've done with this kind of technology is we literally went through every piece of literature written, and we created the first molecular systems map of all neurovascular diseases. To keep it simply, we created what's called an engineering architecture. So if you look at this building, you have a foundation, you have the plumbing and the electricity, and then you have the interior design, right? Well, what we went through was, this is the foundation. So this is the endothelial, the parasites, and the astrocytes. We mapped out all the molecular pathways. We found how they communicate, the communication layer. And then we took every disease, and by the way, none of this we're up, making up. We literally took all the literature and, and in, integrated. What you see here is Alzheimer's, 
and for example ALS, they're both dysfunctions in a similar pathway. Um, pharmaceutical companies love to put everything as individual diseases because then you can create a single solution for each one. But what this shows is that these diseases are literally various manifestations of different types of things that could occur and that could occur because of different uh, phenomenon that's taking place. Anyway, when we submitted this, just to give you, oops, what happened? Um, can you, um, Prabhakar, can you just say okay to that? Sorry. And just let me go back, thanks. Yeah, just cancel that, Prabhakar. Yeah, can you start start back for me? Where was it? Yeah. Um, sorry about that, some of these fonts on these there. So, there you go. So, when the reason I'm sharing this with you is when we, Nature, Neuroscience, you know, all these big journals, they have impact factors like Academy Award ratings. <laughs> Nature is considered one of the biggest uh, journals in the world. And when we submitted this, half of the reviewers thought this was brilliant, and the other half said, what is this engineering system stuff? We don't know what you're talking about. This must be all BS. So we had to write back a 30-page response, educating these neuroscientists on engineering approaches. Anyway, it got published in Nature Neuroscience. It's a big win. <clears throat> but it basically <clears throat> took biology to an engineering systems approach. Now, some people said, well, this is all interesting diagrams, but can you actually use these technologies to do large-scale complex modeling, right? So, uh, how many people here exercise? A lot of people exercise here? Okay, most, well, when you exercise, this is your arteries, blood flows through your arteries, and the reason exercise is good, you get vasodilation, your body releases an important chemical called nitric oxide. All right, I think Time Magazine said nitric oxide was a molecule of the century. When blood flows through here, there's a series of chemical interactions that takes place in the presence of arginine and you get NO. Andrew Koo, one of my colleagues at MIT and Brigham, literally set up a wet lab experiment where he could send blood flow and he could measure nitric oxide release. Very painstaking to do. If you look on the surface, if you see the surface, it looks like your bathroom tiles. These are the endothelial cells. And if you look on that surface, there's a structure called the glycocalyx. It's like a Christmas tree. It moves when blood flows, and when it moves through a series of chemical reactions, nitric oxide gets released. If you go look at the literature, it's like the blind man touching the elephant. Everyone has their view. You'll see these little ball and stick diagrams. There's thousands of them. So if you could integrate them, you could develop a mechanistic, not just some statistics, understanding of, of this phenomenon. And that's what we did, and what you're seeing here is this line here, the black line is the actual mathematical prediction. You know what the, these dots are? That's the actual wet lab results done in the lab. So it's not a curve fit. So we're, what we're showing is that the mathematics can actually predict real phenomena. This was quite an important thing because up until then, the biologist said this is too complicated, you can't do this stuff. And this was published in one of the other big journals in the world called Cells Biophysical Journal. All right? So I'm sharing that with you to show that we're moving to a point where we can understand complex systems, we can model them, and this is where even pharmaceutical companies want to go because you know why? It's taking them too long, they're losing a lot of money, just from the pure economic side. The other one I want to share with you is the power of this to actually start solving and looking at diseases in a new way. This is a paper that came out in Nature saying if you're going to solve cancer, 
you have to start doing combinations, cocktails of medicines. Why are they saying this? Well, if I gave you this much chemotherapy, this much dosage, it could also have toxicity. So people are saying, why don't I lower the dosage and combine lots of little things, cocktails. But some of you into the health world will say, duh, that's what food is, right? That's what, because food is multi-combination therapy. The interesting thing was, I don't know any of the authors, but Cytosol, the technology I had created, was the only one cited in that paper as able to do combination therapy. So we went and um, said, why don't we do this? So we went literally, um, raised some money, and we modeled all the molecular pathways of pancreatic cancer, went through 10 million different combinations on the computer, found 70 that were viable, and we actually got one allowed by the FDA. So when we submitted this, the FDA contacted us. They said, we never really make outbound calls, but we were so impressed what you, what you were doing. This is where we want to move to the 23rd century. Again, I'm sharing that with you to let you know there are people in what you may call big pharma who also have kids, who also want to see their loved ones get better. It's not some monolithic unit, okay? Um, so anyway, this got allowed, but it, set up, it, it gave us credibility that we could work with the big guys. And in closing, where you want to, just to finish this is, how many people are into like eating well and know what turmeric is? Okay? Well, um, in India, it turns out, you know, curry, if you go eat curry powder, the curry is actually a mixture of herbs, uh, combination, turmeric being the active ingredient in curry, and then curcumin being the active, active in turmeric. Uh, it turned out about 15 years ago, Indians get one-third, was found epidemiologically, Indians get one-third less liver cancer than their Asian counterparts in China. And people uh, found that it was likely curcumin. And, so, and since then, there's been 6,000 papers published on curcumin. So what we did was, this is just to show you the power of this systems approach. This outer cell represents a cell wall, this outer circle. This represents the inner cell wall, the nucleus. And we literally mapped out all the chemical reactions from those papers. We're not saying it's perfect, but we put it all together where curcumin hits. So you can actually see curcumin inhibits various processes. Over on the far left over there, you can see curcumin hits a process that the same thing Advil does, ibuprofen. So it stops inflammation. So we were able to mathematically model this. Similar, we did this for resveratrol. You know, if you're drinking wine, so imagine you're having now your Indian meal with some red wine. Um, we're literally modeling what this occurs, and we can literally run mathematical experiments now. So the first row, the far left, right here, we're modeling inflammation. So to keep it simple, 0.15 means you have high inflammation in the body. I'm not giving any curcumin, any resveratrol. See that? You have high inflammation. Then I just give curcumin, it comes down. Everyone see that to 0.05? Then I just give resveratrol, oops, it comes down. And then finally I do a combination. You notice what I've done in the combination, I've reduced the amount of turmeric, I've reduced the amount of resveratrol, but you see what happens, it goes down even farther. This is called a synergistic effect. This is why food is powerful. This is why people want to do cocktails. Is that clear? But we're able to understand this versus someone just hand-waving, oh yeah, I put this stuff together or at Whole Foods, why it works. So I give you that background because the, the journey that brought us here today comes from a journey of going through starting in India with my grandmother doing this stuff to going to MIT, getting a bunch of degrees and being able to do this. And we today work with the biggest pharma companies in the world. We work with nutraceutical companies um, who actually want to create products that work. 
Um, the other part of Massachusetts, if you heard, it's a cradle of freedom, right? You have, you know, Paul Revere's run that took place here. You have Lexington, Bunker Hill. All of this stuff took place here. So the other aspect of my journey that brings us here is really a, a desire for freedom. Uh, remember I told you about the, the email thing? Well, part of that thing I didn't tell you was when it went into the Smithsonian. The day it went into the Smithsonian, it created this huge uproar, okay? Because I didn't promote it for 35 years. People called me all sorts of names. You can see that here. Gawker Media. And you should read this because this is a kind of vile stuff that took place on the internet, which takes place in this discourse. Okay? This is not in 1940, Jackie Robinson. This is in 2012. The thought of a dark-skinned Indian guy inventing email in Newark bothers some people. Okay? And, and these were done by people who claimed to be liberals, okay, in their meaning. So, um, and behind this was the media who was supported by historians who had already concluded that email was done by the military and how dare this guy promote that he did the invention of email. Uh, historian, and it was almost a new skull was found in Africa that had to be beaten out of history. And behind that guy was Raytheon, who's down the street, who had already written that they had invented email. Why? Because it was a $270 billion um, $270 million cybersecurity market, and they had branded themselves as the inventors of email. So when this stuff went in, it created a huge problem for them, their branding. But what people didn't know is that I've been a fighter also. Uh, several years ago when I went to India, I was recruited by the Prime Minister of India on my Fulbright to run the largest scientific institution. Within uh, about six months, I found out they just wanted the MIT guy there. They didn't want to do anything. I exposed the corruption in India. I got fired. Had to, it was all over Indian news, had to escape India up through Nepal, and had to come home. True story. Wow. Okay? Uh, the, the current prime minister invited me back, and that's my trip that I took home. Okay? And when I got home, Nature had me write an article um, on, hey, India has all these smart people. How come no Nobel Prize scientists have ever come indigenously from India? I don't know if you know that. You, you have to leave India. Gobind Karana couldn't get a job as an instructor in India because of the corruption. He comes here, he ends up to MIT, and he ends up winning the Nobel Prize in Medicine. So India has a lot of smart people, it's quite corrupt. Um, so I wrote this article calling Innovation Demands Freedom, How Science Demands Freedom. All right? And this is a picture of me burning the South African flag when I was a 17-year-old kid on the steps of MIT, because MIT had investments in South Africa. That's me challenging the president of MIT. That's me fighting when one of my friends was thrown in jail by the Sri Lankan government. And that's me on my PhD graduation saying U.S. out of Iraq, okay? Long before it's popular to say that. So, um, and by the way, getting back to the invention of email, when all of this took place, um, this is a guy who was attacking me, and he was part of the military-industrial complex, and he had forgotten he had written that article in December 1977. The good news is one of my mentors was Noam Chomsky, and Noam came out and he said, it's obvious who invented email. And... Um, at the same time, Walter Isaacson, who's this liberal guy who wrote the book on Steve Jobs, he writes this book right in the heat of this controversy about innovators of the digital revolution, okay? Email is left out of this historical book. And I just want you to look at this. These are the only innovators Isaacson could find. Okay, do you see a problem here? Yeah. All right, so there's no darkies. <laughs> There is. There's no people of color who have invented anything. So, and he ends 
his book by talking about this guy. You know who he is? Vannevar Bush, who was the last, who was the president of MIT, who went and started Raytheon. And Isaacson argues that all great innovation comes from the military-industrial-academic complex, the golden triangle. And by the way, I was a part of that. I was on the front page of inventing many other things. But that picture doesn't fit well with that. Okay? And it's not a race thing alone. It's the fact that it was done in Newark. Now, I give this context because there's been a lot of very important things in science that the academic establishment has become the oldest profession now. And if you, this is a great movie you should see called The Inside Job. Um, it really is about, remember when the financial collapse took place in 2008? Um, it's about what actually took place. This is a professor at Columbia. He had written this beautiful article uh, saying the financial stability of Iceland. Okay? Do you know what happened, right? That article, lots of money went to Iceland because we thought it was a great economy. And then it collapsed. This guy in the movie, he shows that he changed his own resume on his Columbia website to say the instability of the... Okay? This is modern academia. And we also know the story of smoking, right? For 50 years it was said that smoking was good for you. And there's a great book, um, Professor Chomsky told me to read it this time, called The Golden Holocaust, which brings us out. So, by the way, getting back to Gawker, um, I decided to sue them. And uh, not only did I win a $750,000 settlement, uh, but we also put them out of business, okay? And they had to remove those three articles. So the reason I share, thank you. The reason I share that with you is that, you know, what my journey to Massachusetts, I think the amazing opportunity we have today is that this is a center of freedom, right? Truth and health. That's where we're at. Or we could become the center of power, profit, and control. And the vaccine discourse has the opportunity to really expose these dynamics. So that's the background. Let's go to what does it mean to be healthy, right? What does this really mean? Because my journey has said the real opportunity with health is resilience. What is resilience? That's what it really is, right? What does it mean to be healthy? So let's talk about re resilience. And one way to think about it is use it or lose it. All right? Now, resilience. There's a whole history uh, that people have talked about resilience, and it really comes down to stress and stillness. Your body, all these systems that we have biologically, we're not supposed to be just sitting still all day, right? Or you get flabby. We were supposed to stress these systems. Um, Hans Sele was really the guy who really started defining stress. But stress actually comes from an engineering term. Stress is actually when you put stress, like for, if you take a building, you, you can have you know, uh, what's called normal stress or shear stress. It's an actual engineering term. And when you stress things, like for example, if you stress an object like this, you have to be careful because if you stress it just right, it'll spring back. But if you str stress it too much, it can break, right? So stress, has a, it's a very interesting modulator because you put enough stress, things actually get used, they get strong. If you don't stress things enough, you can actually um, weaken them. You know, for example, if you own an apartment, I have one in New York, and if I don't use it, I have to have friends go there and actually flush the toilet and move things around. You want people to use stuff. Um, the definition of stress, there's many definitions, but one of the key things, it's really the ability to face different trauma, the ability that when you get stressful situations, you're able to perform. 
Um, and that's really strength. That's where strength comes from. So resilience is a very important concept. And the way, and, and in science and engineering, you can measure resilience by the spare capacity, by flexibility, by how you're able to rebound to situations. You know, some people are really strong. No matter what happens to their lives, they're able to come back. Some people look at people's lives who've undergone um, awful things when they were young, and they sometimes end up becoming the most successful people versus people where everything was given to them. And the neurobiology of resilience is a big area of research, which is how do you um, create resilience? So the issue is not how you just simply be stress-free, <laughs> knowing that we're all going to have stress. How do you create resilience? And there's been papers written on this. But one of the things that comes out of this is what they call stress inoculation. It's an interesting term. That you give yourself a certain amount of stress and you take it away. So when you exercise, we all know this, right? You, you know, typically if you do weightlifting, uh, people say you should do a, um, you know, two days on, one day off, two days on, two days off, right? Why? Because if you exercise too much, you're going to start breaking down muscle tissue. On the other hand, if you uh, simply sit around, things go flabby. And what they found is that there are neurotransmitters in your body that get resilient to these stress inoculations. And so if this is your normal mode of stress, they're finding that uh, with stress inoculation, you get performance improvement in multiple ways. You can, you can do better performance under less stress. But anyway, uh, the bottom line is stress is not a bad thing. And you have to learn how to use it in, in important ways. The Japanese swords, I don't know if you know how they're made. They put massive amount of heat. They then, you know, cool them. Massive amount of heat, cool them. You're doing both. In yoga, how many people practice yoga? You, if you do most yoga forms, you're supposed to be, in, you know, you do standing postures and you do shavasana, right? You go back and forth. There's a reason for this because you want the nervous system to chill out and then you want to exercise this. Is this making sense? So the notion of resilience is, I think, where we really want to point to. That's what is, this is all about. All the systems in our body were designed to be resilient. How do you, now, the, so yeah, resilience is cool, but each one of us is very different, right? If you have someone who's suddenly had a major injury, you can't tell them, well, go start exercising back right away. They need to go through a different stress inoculation, right, to get back to strength, uh, back to where they were. Someone else has already been working out regularly, they can go to a different level. So this is very, very personalized, which means one size does not fit all. Okay? So we want to get resilient, one size doesn't fit all, and this is why the big growth right now opportunity is personalized medicine. At the uh, last nutritional conference I went to, they said, the, no, the number one, there are three trends that they saw taking place in healthcare. One is millennials want authenticity. Number two is pet, believe it or not, pets. If you want to start companies in the area of pet care. The third was personalization. People don't want, you know, one size fits all. Um, they want uh, personalized medicine. Around 2003 to 2006 is when all the work in systems biology was taking place. That's when the NIH director, Francis Collins, even Obama started using this term precision medicine. But it's about recognizing we need to go personal with medicine. And a simple way of thinking that is the right medicine or the right treatment for the right person at the right time. And all of this is really about, in my view, resilience. 
It's about you want to build personal resilience for yourself, and you and and so you make choices. You go to a personal trainer, right? You go to your, your personal yoga teacher. They should technically not be giving you all the same yoga postures. You go to your doctor, who should be having a patient-doctor relationship with you. And out of that very personal relationship for you or your child or your family is where health emerges. It's not one size fits all. So the key part of personalization is when you're implementing methods to affect these systems, two variables are important, safety and efficacy. Okay? You don't want to do certain things that can harm you, um, nor do you want to do things that are non-efficacious. So for example, if you want to build your body and you want to put on a lot of muscle, well, one way is you go through a certain process. Well, the other way is you could take a steroid, right? That may have a certain effect, but it could also shrink other things, okay? Um, but so you have, you, know, you, have, you have some efficacy for a short term, but you have other things that it affects. Dr. Dienerker is going to talk to you about this when we look at genetically engineered food, some of the work we've done there. Um, so in order to achieve safety and efficacy, we have to take a systems approach. Okay, so let me repeat again. We want, want resilience. Everyone agree with that? In order to get resilience, each one of us is very different. We need personalization, which means the right treatment or the right medicine for the right person at the right time. But in order to do personalization, we need to be safe and efficacious, right? But safety and efficacy come from a systems approach versus the reduction of suppression. Just to give you a fun example here, uh, some of the work we've done is the integration of Eastern and Western medicine. There's a tool we have called Your Body, Your System. And you can actually answer a series of questions. And in this triangle, it'll figure out your body type. It's an integration of the Eastern system with modern systems theory. I don't have a chance to go through that. But it, that red dot represents you. And then you can take another series of questions, and the black dot represents how you've deviated from your own homeostasis. In the Indian system, they call this your vikriti. We call it your disturbance. And then you can take a particular, then the system will recommend to you particular foods or particular things you should take for you that will help you get back into balance. And this is really the notion of health. Each one of us has a particular way we operate well. You deviate from that by, I don't know, jet lag, this, flying around, what, not eating right. And the goal is to get back to who you are, right? Um, so the way we get there is through a whole systems approach. So now I want to go to the immune system with that background. We've talked about resilience. We've talked about precision medicine. We've talked about the fact that we have tools now. So let's talk about the immune system. Do we want to take a whole systems approach to understand the immune system, or are we currently taking a reductionist approach? Which means, are we looking at, how, how are we actually looking at whether the immune system's functioning well? How do we know in anyone's, in this room right now, who's got a, a very um, strong, resilient immune system? What are the variables of that? Is it simply the measure of the number of white blood cells? And if you have this antibody or that? Because that is currently the current model of measuring the immune system. You guys know that? The 1915 model is white blood cell count. The 1959 model, right, Perbucker, is whole blood count. And then we added antibodies. These three variables, or these two variables, are all we use to measure if your immune system is stronger than your immune system. Okay? So think about that for a second. We're using a single variable called, oh, I expose you to something, you got this antibody, 
and therefore you have a strong immune system. Does that sound right? Because these are very complex systems, and we're going to get into this. So that's called reductionism. So when we talk about vaccines, by the way, vaccines are not, uh, the concept of immunity is the key. Resilience, right? Getting your body. In, in China, for example, and in, even in India, they had a process called variolation. Everyone heard of this? They would literally take someone, if they had smallpox, take the entire pus and shoot it up someone's nose, okay? And the idea was to expose them to it. So this is not... <laughs> yeah, I know, it's gross. Um, so, um, um, and, and by the way, an African slave is the one who brought this technique here uh, it, uh, when we started inoculating the troops in the United States. Washington knew small, the British could be spreading smallpox, so he had 40,000 of his troops through this technique. It wasn't, you know, it was literally they would make a little incision and they would give the entire virus, okay? The whole thing, whole system. And um, some would argue that helped win the war. Um, and then Edward Jenner started doing that with cowpox. So, so, the, so what are we trying to do here? If the goal is to create immunity, let's all agree that's a good thing. So one way you could create immunity is you play in dirt. You expose yourself to all sorts of exogenous stuff, and then your body creates immunity. So we're going to take this slow, but you're going to really get a systems perspective on immunity and what I believe is a real flaw in this entire discourse that's taking place. So some of you may know we have an innate immune system and an adaptive immune system. How many people know about this? Okay. So the innate immune system is the thing that is your skin, it's called your mucous membranes, uh, people are calling it part of your microbiome now. It's what the pathogens first connect with and they have a methodology of reacting to that, okay? Which is called the early immune system, which responds to that and interacts with that. Um, the typical theory was this system has no memory, this system is basically all or not, it just goes after everything. It's a bunch of soldiers who just start shooting at everything. And the adaptive immune system is a system that then kicks in after that to be very specific. So if you got someone sneezed on you and, and you know, they had measles or something, right? A bunch of different chemical forces go to attack that within the first 72 hours of exposure. You get fever, rash, etc. And then after that, your body, the adaptive immune system, creates what they call an antibody against that particular virus. This is sort of the standard model of immunology, right? So, and by the way, to give you an idea, the innate immune system has physical, it's got the skin, the cough, the tears, the mucosal layer, it's got monocyte, macrophages, neutrophils. You don't need to know this, but the point is, the innate immune system has different arsenal than what they call the adaptive immune system, which is T cells, B cells, you know, etc. Right? Is that clear? So you got these two systems. One is what you're exposed to, and the other is... Now, um, and by the way, there's some interesting differences between these systems typically you would learn is that how fast these occur. The innate immune system is pretty quick. It's either on or off. Its potency is lower. The kinetics, it's, it's a few days. So, so if you get exposed to something, it's, if you notice if you get a, a, a flu or something, right? The first three, four days are the most horrible, right? Because your body's trying to protect itself through the innate immune system, all right? Um, the adaptive immune system has different characteristics. It's a little bit longer, it's very specific, etc. 
What I want to now walk you through is a different way of looking at this. So this is how we in engineering systems look at the world, okay? Um, so you have the innate immune system, you have the adaptive immune system, and then some antibodies typically created. Is that what we got there? Yeah. Um, and a pathogen comes here. This is what people typically see this as. Is that clear? This is what's known. And a vaccine really doesn't go through here, it goes to the adaptive immune system, okay? See your problem with that? Okay. But it gets even more interesting because this is what's been really left out of the discourse. What really is going on is you have the innate immune system, but there is a missing link system that's rarely talked about in this discourse. It's called the interferon system, the IFN system. And we're gonna talk about this because by understanding this, you're gonna arm yourself with some very valuable information that's really gonna help hopefully unite this unfortunate division. Is there's the IFN system, it's called the interferon system. The interferon system was uh, discovered by Lindemann and Sachs, right, Lindemann? Um, and the inter interferon system is really the missing link between the innate immune system and the adaptive immune system. And it turns out when you actually look at this, it's not just one model like this, there's actually feedback. When you get hit with the pathogen, the innate immune system turns on, the IFN system then gets kicked in, which then you know, initiates your adaptive immune system, and then the adaptive immune system closes a loop to clean up stuff, all right? This is the latest stuff that's coming on. This model is a model of the 1950s. It's really old, probably in the 1915s. But this is a model that we're still using today. And you can, you know, um, and, but, but the good news is people want to move to this. Now, when I did my work at MIT, I did a lot of focus on this, and it was just fortuitous when I got involved in this effort here, is I went back and looked at the work I'd done, and I'm gonna share that with you because you know, first of all, you can't get a degree out of MIT, particularly your PhD, unless you actually do something new. And when you present your PhD thesis, the entire faculty is invited. It's a huge defense you have to do. So to anyone questioning my background in this field, um, we can have a discussion about it. Um, let me talk to you about the interferon system, okay? It turns out that recent research shows that when you get a virus, Remember the old model was the, adapt, the, the, the innate system just turns on and it's on or off? The latest research in Japan shows, I think this just came out in 20, what was this? 20, 2018, just one year ago. So the old model was the innate immune system. When stuff comes through, it's a dumb system. It doesn't know anything. It turns out when you get a viral infection through your innate immune system, that the system actually turns on in the next case, the, the genes actually get remolded up to 1,000 genes. And the next time you get hit with that virus, those 1,000 genes are ready. There's memory in the innate immune system. Okay? This is very important because what this means is that there's a whole bunch of genetic uh, molecular systems taking place. It's not just all or nothing, which was the old model that when you get hit with a virus coming in through this way, or pathogens, genes are actually getting remodeled, which means it's called epigenetics. Genes that were not turned on the first time the virus hit, 
The next time they get turned on, it's, uh, if, if we can talk more if you want to detail, it's called the histone groups, which control the DNA actually get remolded, so those genes can get turned on. Very, very fascinating research, which means the innate immune system is not just a dumb system, which is what we've been all told to do, that the adaptive immune system is smart and the innate immune system is dumb, so it's no big deal short-circuiting that. The other interesting thing is there are different kinds of interferons. I'm going to talk about the interferon system. The interferon system is a linkage between the innate and the adaptive. Interferons were discovered uh, in the 50s um, when we noticed that uh, when something got infected with a virus, that the next time another virus came, the thing was resilient to it. So let me repeat that. Some, so a, a virus infection takes place, but in the local area of that virus, when another virus came, that thing protected itself from other viruses. This was called viral interference, viral interference. And again, what's fascinating is this does not get brought up in this discussion about vaccines. That when you get exposed to one pathogen, your body actually gets ready for fighting many other pathogens, okay? And it's doing that through interferons. There's type one and type two interferons. And these interferons are activated initially by the innate immune system, but they themselves have their own cascade of systems. Type two interferons stimulate the anti-inflammatory response or involved in the linkage to the adaptive immune system. The key thing I want you to take away, you have the innate immune system that I'm sharing with you, new, very fascinating research is showing that there's memory, the interferon system is a bridge, and I'm going to walk you through this. Okay, I'm going to walk you through this diagram. Andres, I'm going to go over here if it's okay, if you need to move the camera. I'm going to walk you through this, but I want you to understand this diagram for two reasons. Um, first reason is it's going to look really complicated, but you're going to get it. But by the way, do you see, this is just one subsystem within a very complex system. This, this is some of the great work done by Tanaguchi. And what we did was I literally took this entire system, the interferon system, and we used our technology to model it, which matches what's going on. But what I'm going to walk you through is it's going to seem, so if you can follow me, you're going to learn a lot in the next five minutes, okay? This outer circle, everyone know what a cell is, right? Outer circle, inner circle, inner circle is where all the DNA is. Outer circle is the cell membrane. Everyone got that? Yes? Okay, good. So this is the outer, by, by the way, we're looking at one cell. This is the outer circle here, and this is the inner circle here, which is where all the DNA material is. All right? You see what it says here? Virus. So when a virus lands, I, I've done a great animation, of, which I actually modeled. I, I don't have it here, but I, I think you can understand it. So virus lands, right? You, someone sneezes on you, and a virus lands on one of your cells. Okay? Watch what happens. When that virus lands, the first phase, remember I told you when you first get infected, you get a little rash and a fever. This all occurs within 72 hours, what I'm going to walk you through. When that virus lands on your body, a series of chemical reactions go. Just look at the step one. And within your body, they're called interferon regulatory factors. They're, they're just hanging out there for that virus. So think about that. Just think about that. Your body has chemicals waiting for these enemies that we've called enemies. So when IRF3 
interacts with that virus, this gets translated to your genome, and your body creates IFN beta. It's called interferon beta. Some people have tried to create medicines from interferon beta. So your body, first of all, creates interferon beta. Everyone got it? So virus lands, your body has some interesting chemicals which you know how to react with that virus. It gets translated to your genome and your, 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 um, your DNA uh, trans, uh, translates and transcribes IFN beta. Step one. This IFN beta can either, you see it goes over here, this can be another cell. So one cell gets infected, it, right now I'm showing it on the same cell, it can go to another cell and it basically say, hey Bob, I've been infected, okay? It's a signaling. It's called a cytokine. So IFN beta goes, and so now assume this is a different cell, and lands on a receptor and says, hey Bob, or, you know, says Bob got infected. When this lands on this cell, the second phase occurs. A series of chemical reactions goes, and then the body actually creates these things called IRF7, okay? So your body, Cell one got infected by a virus, it too may create, it communicates to itself or to another cell, and the body creates another chemical called IRF7. And that's just hanging out, waiting. The next time a virus comes, could be a completely different virus. Guess what your body does? It interacts, the IRF7 interacts with that virus, and it, it, it unleashes a nuclear arsenal of IF and beta and alpha, which are very powerful things that arrest that virus. Let me walk through this again. Virus comes, the body is smart enough to create IFN beta, which signals another cell and tells it to get ready by creating these chemicals. This virus comes and it releases a nuclear arsenal. What does that tell you? That tells you these pathogens are good for us. That the body is waiting for these things so it can develop viral interference through these IRF7s. Any Yep. We should have you hold the mic. Um, what's the matter? You can't hear? Just oh, well, yeah, I, I'll just stay here then. So, so what I'm trying to share here is that you have a phenomenon of when you step back and look at this, who the hell ever said a virus is bad? Why would the body have all this? This is within the interferon system. We're not even talking about the adaptive. So this clearly shows that mechanistically the body has the ability to create and signal and get ready um, for the second virus to come. Does that make sense? Can, I have a, can you just put this tape here because I just want to stay here. Um, does that make sense? It's cool, right? Inherent body wisdom. The body has wisdom, it has mechanisms. Can I just have, yeah. Um, it has the ability and it wants these pathogens. That's what I take away from this. Because, because without creating these, you, you would get assaulted by viruses. You would need thousands of vaccines. That's where this, or tens of thousands. So this tells me, so the viral interference phenomenon is not talked about in this discourse. And by the way, so when we did this, we, my work at MIT was literally understanding all of this. And I went and modeled all these four mechanisms. The first phase is called receptor signaling. The second phase is called the, I'm sorry, the virus infection, the receptor signaling and the amplification cycle, which is this. By the way, this is what's really cool. 
There's a fourth phase where your body, it's a little bit hard to see, actually goes and turns this off. If it simply kept doing it, you'd have, your body would be an autoimmune disorder all day long, right? So the body also knows how to turn these things off and modulate this process. So there's the viral infection, there's a receptor signaling, there's the amplification, and there's the uh, cycle to stop it. So with our technology, we literally took all these pathways, which we found in all the literature, thousands of pieces of literature, and then we were actually able to model it. What you're seeing here, see this pink line? That's IFN beta, which is that first virus infected. That comes, and then right slightly after that comes IFN alpha. And you can see the time course on this. And this is within about eight hours, okay? And guess what? This matches what people have seen literally on, I mean, over a 24-hour period. Our data matches what people have actually seen in clinical work. So we're actually able to understand mechanistically this phenomenon. It's cool, isn't it? So what I'm trying to share with you is that when you look at this entire system, a way to look at it is do vaccines bypass and short circuit that system, okay? Does upregulation, for example, of a protein like HBGM1, which is shown in auto, you know, neuroinflammation, um, how does that affect things? And do we know the risk of bypassing the IFN system? And is there a risk matrix for vaccines? So by the way, when you look at the immune system, it's involved in everything, guys. This is, by the way, a recent paper that came out. I, I, uh, I'll, I'll give you the re reference after we come back. Uh, it's, it's a new paper, just a year ago. People are saying, now we need to do systems immunology, okay? <laughs> About time. And, and, but look at how many things the immune system's involved in. You screw with this, you can affect a lot of stuff. Um, and what this paper ends, this is a paper that just came out at the end of 2017. It says, and this is written by some, I think Howard Hughes, medical, and I mean, these are not, uh, it says, a case in point is that the main immunological metrics used widely in medicine are white blood cell counts and the, and the complete blood cell count. The, the former was developed in 1915 and the latter was developed in 1959. It's time for an upgrade. Okay? Fantastic paper. So I'm saying this because, well, you know, we've already understood this, but it's good when other colleagues also say this and put this out there. But this is probably one of the most important points. And this is science now. This is system science. It's not saying I gave one thing and I see something else. Now, so here's really the big question. So the summary of this discussion is the following. Is you get a pathogen, it can go through this way, right? We can go this way, which is exposure, we hit the innate, we hit the IFN, we, we hit the adaptive, and you get immune response. Now what are the risks of this and what are the benefits of this? Good question, right? Or we go right to the adaptive. And what are the risks of this and what are the benefits of this? Does this make sense? Have you ever seen it like this? This is the takeaway diagram. Like, you can do this, you can do this. Where is the risk matrix? Because now we're talking engineering. If you're going to go short circuit, you know, we have a, I don't know where Frank is, but if Frank's going to go do re-electrical work here and say, you know, we just had some wiring work done on our data center, first thing I say is, what's the risk of if we short circuit the generator and we do this? What's going to be the problems? Right? 
But this is what we're talking about. Now, have we figured all of the details out? No way. But this is what needs to be figured out. But we are definitely doing this. And we're not saying don't do this either. But if you're going to do this, it has to be personalized. Because some people may have really, they've never been exposed to anything. They lived in a nice little bubble all day, right? Maybe you need to titer some vaccines to them in a, some fashion we don't know yet, instead of just throwing them into a slum. Some people have grown up in slums. And this explains why, if you go back to resilience, when we started doing you know, clean water, when we started adding you know, sewage treatment, when we started adding vitamin A, you saw a huge decline because the resilience model was in the other extreme. People are being exposed to so much pathogens that their system was constantly being hit, right? And if you don't get exposed to enough things, you don't build resilience. So you could have extreme stressors all the time, or you could have no stressors. There is a middle path, and that middle path is a personal thing that needs to be figured out for each person. By the way, this is an interesting, there's a um, chart, I don't know if you've seen, in the inserts, um, we'll send it out, uh, but is Aaron here, Siri? Did he show up? Oh, there's Aaron. Um, Aaron shared with me a great Excel spreadsheet, which basically is an awesome spreadsheet that he put together, which basically has, for every vaccine, the potential risks of disease that may cause. It's actually in the inserts, right, Aaron? In the vaccine. So, right. So the real issue is if you have the immune system, we know that certain vaccines may, the blue, the, the blue lines mean that it's causing that disease. And then here you have the normal exposure. This may actually inhibit some of those diseases. It turns out interferons, and by the way, I have a paper coming out that will be up online that summarizes all this in a much more scientific format, uh, which will be putting out, we wanted to have it ready, but it'll be coming out in, within the week. You can go get it, you can pre-order it, it's up there. But it actually shows that many of these interferons actually inhibit many of the autoimmune diseases, okay? So we've been talking about adjuvants, but I'm taking it even one more level deeper, that these pathogens uh, may initiate interferons, which actually protect us for many of these autoimmune disorders. Is this making sense? Okay, the interferon system, viral interference, the innate immune system, subverting that, short-circuiting that, could have many other things. And we've only, you know, the work we've done with interferons just starts showing that. So if you look at, by the way, there's a, th this is not our work, but there's a lot of data showing that when you get infected by measles, right, there's many diseases that it actually averts. There's, you know, for example, this is lowers um, risk of lymph cancer, right? A natural cancer, uh, measles infection lowers, uh, what is that, breast? Yeah. yeah, breast cancer. Natural measles infection lowers prostate cancer. So, and this adds up because you're building viral interference. Interferons are good for stopping other diseases. So let's wrap up here. Um, you know, the Declaration of Independence really says we need to have, all, we all need to have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? And the march of humanity has been through this process where we've gone from slavery to becoming serfs and wage slaves, but it's been a long process of freedom. And in this discussion, 
When we look at, it's always been what I want and what the collective wants. And I've talked about this before. It's an interesting balance, right? I want to do whatever the hell I want to pursue my dreams, but then I'm, I live in a collective. And how do you balance this? And this is really uh, this concept of risk versus benefit. And in this process, what we do in other fields of engineering is we do these risk matrices. And we'll, we'll come back to this in the, se in the final session, but for any choice you make in life, I'm going to take a vaccine, I'm not going to take a vaccine. I'm going to drive a car, I'm not going to drive a car. Those decisions, you decide what is the occurrence of an accident occurring, harm occurring, and if that occurs, how catastrophic will it be? And those two probabilities help you design this, and we'll come back to this. Now, what would be ideal is, should I take the measles vaccines or not take it? Okay? And for my personal situation, can you show me a risk matrix? Because if I take the measles vaccine, there's some indication that neuroinflammation may occur, which is catastrophic. And what is the, uh, op relative to not taking the vaccine, right, what is a relative risk? Some data shows one out of um, uh, one out of a hundred thousand, or one out of a million, or I think one out of a hundred thousand, if you want, or one out of seventeen hundred point oh oh one percent of you getting neuroinflammation by not taking the vaccine, and about one out of eighty-eight when you do take the vaccine. So it's one point one three six percent versus point oh oh one percent. So now, if you're you, you, we need to have these risk matrices. They don't exist in this field. Um, and by the way, there's ways to do this. People calculate probabilities. Um, by the way, in the area of risk, some people may have you know, risks that are not real also, okay? Um, but in the area of auto insurance, for example, we make it very personalized, right? Um, if you're a 18-year-old and you have 20 DUIs, um, you're probably higher risk, risk than someone who's 15 who's never had an accident. And we, we create... Um, uh, uh, insurance programs out of that. And in closing, what I want to say is that this entire field is an engineering problem. MIT created the Department of Biological Engineering. They went away, I mean, bio biologists do their stuff. Why did they create the Department of Biological Engineering? You know why? Because vaccines are a product of engineering. Pharmaceutical products are a product of engineering. Biomedical devices are a product of engineering. And in engineering, you're always focused on risk. And in engineering, the other big thing is you do not treat the customer like dirt, okay? Let me explain. If uh, I build a bridge or I build an airplane and I could have flown these airplanes a million times and one airplane falls out of the sky and someone says, you know, the airplane fell out, you don't go, well, that was one out of a million, shut the hell up, right? Or if you use a piece of software and you call Apple, they don't say, well, everyone else is having fun, something must be wrong. You get pretty upset, right? In engineering, every customer matters because if one customer has a problem, it gives you an opportunity to understand mechanism why something's wrong. And what I've come to conclude is that in engineering, when I build something, I take ownership for what I'm building. In medicine and in biology, we don't know how nature engineered these things. We don't know all the parts. We're only starting to understand them. However, the MD and the pediatrician, in their training, they're not trained to appreciate this engineering. In fact, unfortunately, it's not no blame to them. They've built a hubris to think that they already should know it all when they don't know it all. In many ways, the MD and the pediatrician is at the end
of a cycle. They're like the pilot who's flying the airplane or tech support. I don't, I don't want to demean anyone, but they're at the end of a process. And they don't know about the entire engineering framework. And I think if we start looking at it this way, they, don't, they haven't had a chance to consider all of these systems, right? That we just went through. They don't look at it this way. They're only starting to. So I think the opportunity, I'm going to end on this. I'll, I'm going to do some of the risk assessment when I come back with Debbie. But I think the important aspect here is that we're looking at the need for risk matrices. We're looking at that need for risk assessment models. And we need to take an engineering systems approach. And that engineering systems approach needs to move this discourse to the notion of risk and understanding risk in, in this model. I'm going to end there, but I hope this helps. Any questions? I'll just take, I'll just take like two questions. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, no, what I, Prabhakar, you can come on up. Um, while Prabhakar's setting up, um, we're going to come back to this because I have some slides in the interest of time. How are we doing on time? Okay. All right. How are you guys doing? Do you mind if we go a little bit over? Go. Okay. But uh, yes, Allison. So I was listening to the um, some of the uh, ACIP, the uh, which is the immunization um, uh, advisory committee on immunization protocols, and they they many times said we don't have the data. We have lack of data. We have. Um, no safety data or little safety data. Um, is this going to come along fast enough for us to use in this method? Because they're pushing through medi medications without any data, without any science, um, under assumptions that are already in place. How do we get this out there quicker? With you know, is there? Do you need so you know extra? You know, minds, people. What, what can we yeah. do? Yeah. Uh, so, Allison, one of the, so I have this paper that I'm putting together. This whole concept of that diagram and that um, the immune system model that we're using is basically we're using like something that's 50 years old and show that scientifically. You know, that paper is coming out in, a, in less than a, a few days. That document I think will, could be very valuable because it basically says the science is not settled. And it also says that the immune system is far more complex. And it also shares the fact that we're missing this entire risk matrix. And I, you know, I, I don't know if you can affect, I, I think the main thing to do is to bring out the fact that what they're basing this on is an old model. And um, there, I can give you a, a list of literature now in systems immunology, what they call systems vaccinology. These are just in the last two to three years that are showing, the, just like that quote I just read you, like what they're doing is 100 years old. So I think for lawmakers, what they're in, I don't want to say it's fake science, but it's really old science. And that science has moved forward in a very different way. And if you look at even the basics of this today, that the concept of the innate and the adaptive immune system, those models are freaking wrong, period. Because you're not taking into effect all this. So in the, in the paper I'm putting out, I'm saying imagine you take a vaccinated and unvaccinated person. You shouldn't just be measuring antibodies. What about all these other interferons? There could be a whole bunch of other biomarkers the unvaccinated person has that could actually be a measure of resilience versus a vaccinated person doesn't have. And if that format is correct, that means every vaccine you're getting may be helping in some cases, but it could be lowering 
the level of other systems that get turned on. So we're basically going to become addicted to vaccines. So I, I think there's a way to present this which basically says the science that we have today is 100 years behind. And the people promoting the science are MDs and people who are way at the bottom line of the process. In the risk assessment piece, we're going to talk about more of that. Does that help, Allison? Yeah. Okay. So I have one other question. Yeah, let's here. just take one more. Um, so, so listen, our thing was to go straight through because of the thing. Um, should we just keep going straight through? Yes. Okay. Go ahead. One other question. She, she, you want to just say one of the questions? No. Yeah. Well, I wrote everything down on my card, but in the case of autoimmunity, um, as far as the B cells are concerned, um, for example, like lupus, um, I believe that someone who has lupus creates too many B cells. Is that the same as uh, the INFB? Yeah. Well, no, no, no. It's different. So okay. B cells are, th this is IFN beta is different. It's something, interferons. <coughs> are a different class of chemicals than what the B cells and those things are doing. Okay? okay? So they're not the same. Well, well, they could be created by B cells, okay? okay. Um, but I'm saying they're, they're actually, I'm sorry, they're created by plasmodendritic cells, right? They can regulate the downstream adaptive Right. They can, yeah, they can affect those things. I think the key takeaway is when people get lupus in these diseases, there's something perturbed. There's a systems perturbation that has taken place. And that systems perturbation can occur if you didn't, mo all these are regulatory systems. When you get lupus, it's essentially autoimmune disorder, right? Things are thinking they're always being under attack. And these systems are very finely tuned control systems. So if you go start perturbing something in one area that you think you've solved something, you actually may have put the system into an autoimmune mode. I mean, uh, that it's always thinking it's fighting something. Okay, let's go to Dr. Dinaker. Um, thank you. Thank you. So after Dr. Prabhakar Dinaker speaks, we'll come by and collect cards. Um, just if you're writing down questions, so we can try to get them answered.